Welcome to Sustainably Influence, the podcast, hosted by me, Bianca Foley. And me, Charlotte Williams. In this podcast, we explore our efforts to making changes to our lifestyle as influencers, to live a more eco-conscious lifestyle, and hope that we can encourage you to make one small change. This isn't just a podcast for influencers. We want this to be a community of people who are trying to do their bit, where we can learn from one another and share our tips. So join in the conversation over on our Instagram, at Sustainably Influenced. Today's guest recently spoke at the Conscious Festival, and if that sounds familiar, it should do. We interviewed the co-founder, Paula McKellis, last week, and after listening to Kesha speak at the event, we knew we had to have her on the podcast. In this episode, we discussed something so important to us, both as black women, navigating our way through the conscious journey. We have seen numerous reports in the news discussing the impact of the coronavirus on the BAME community, as well as black, hashtag Black Lives Matter protests after the death of George Floyd. And in light of this, we wanted to use this episode to discuss how the climate crisis affects the BAME community. Kesha is a global speaker, writer and activist who works to heighten individuals and groups of their own biases, the actions they can take and how the climate crisis impacts brown and black communities most. Hashtag climate justice. Known as a global community builder and orator, she has spoken for the New York Times, Fortune 500 companies like Marriott and Macy's, and to the United And today she's with us. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh my God, I'm so happy to be here. It's like living in New oh, York, you don't, you. you don't hear British accents as much as I'd like to, because I do think that they're the best. <laughs> well, <laughs> so this is we're not pleasure. biased in the slightest. No, but... not at all. <laughs> I'm helping myself to undo my own biases. <laughs> But yeah, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know our listeners would love to learn more about you. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey? Yeah, God, it's a little bit of a complicated story. Um, so I was born in Hong Kong. My mother is Indian and my father is English. Um, I was in and between Hong Kong and Australia for 15 years doing, doing school and we traveled a lot at that time. And um, my... Indian family is based in Mumbai and so that was that was kind of where I began to you know just living between those three places that are so drastically different I started to recognize a lot um, I recognized a lot of differences in how people treated each other and then I started recognizing within myself how much I would change according to each environment to adapt and to fit in um, and then I started recognizing just egregious errors in how people um people's environments were so for example in india i was constantly confused as to why the air pollution and and beaches were were so dirty um and then in australia i was always confused about why people were were so aggressive about people's uh skin color and accents and there was a great mockery in there and in hong kong there was always so much styrofoam in the harbors and there's many wonderful things, but they were the things that I started to sort of pick up and became part of the infrastructure of my pursuit of, of justice. Um, and then after finishing university and studying sociology and journalism and then moving to London and then coming back to Hong Kong, um, I started writing and I began my career as in media as a journalist. Um, Mm -hmm. and then eventually that sort of intersected, um, uh, a women's rights organization called Camel Assembly, which was started in New York by my best friend Yelda. Um, and I think we'll, we'll talk more about that 
in, in a second, but um, that then informed a lot of uh, human rights work through the lens of, of women's rights and gender equality. Uh, and then that kind of became something that we transposed to, to nine different cities across four continents. Um, and then from there, that's kind of how I ended up here in New York. Um, and Camel Assembly um, continues as, as an incredibly thriving organization. I, I'm no longer associated with them because I believe drastically that I need to focus on climate justice for the next few years. Um, but that those sort of the interplay of how intersectionality affects all of our social justice issues became a huge focus of my life. Um, and so that's kind of how I'm here now. <laughs> and like bringing together all of them, this is I think you two obviously do very much the same thing. How do we take all of the different ingredients and some of it looks like spilled milk and some of it looks like broken eggs and some of it looks like flour that's fallen on the counter and somehow make a cake, you know? Um, and I, and I think that's particularly true of the, of the current pandemic and, and place that we're in right now as well. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, we were just saying, <laughs> we were just saying this is like our second international podcast episode. So I'm loving it. And you've lived pretty much, you've kind of dotted around the world and just so, oh, just, you've got an amazing story. Um, and you, <laughs> you've become known as a women's rights advocate. And after building the worldwide platform that you did mention, um, Camel Assembly, do you mind like going into that a little bit more so that we can explain that to our, to our listeners? Yeah, of course. So Yelda started Camel Assembly in 2015 in New York, super organically. She literally was like, oh, I know a lot of incredibly dope women. They should know each other. I'm going to bring them together. Um, but Yelda, when you, when you meet her, her, her whole energy is just abundance. She just has so much love to give to all people. And the culture that was thus created was one that was not about competition, but that was about collaboration. And five years ago, thinking about the female conversation, it's, it was drastically different to where it is now. You know, we had various, we had a very different leadership scape. We had um, none of the sort of media tools that the Me Too movement has provided. And the narrative yeah. around women was very much one of, you are my competition. There's not enough men or women. There's not enough people in the, there's not enough spaces in the boardroom. There's not enough and there's not enough, there's not enough. So therefore you are a, a threat. And um, Camel Assembly, when I walked into it, I got invited to it through a mutual uh, friend of ours. And he was like, you should meet Yelda. She runs this thing called Camel Assembly. I was like, I'm, okay, camels, sure. Um, and she invited me to come to this thing. And I walked into this room full of about 50 women. And I'd been in rooms that felt like this before. I was like, oh, this is a room of powerful women. I can just feel that it is. Um, but I had never been in a room that was full of so many powerful women who were so kind. And the moment I sat down, everyone was like, hi, who are you? Where are you from? Like, how are you feeling today? But it was never about what we did. No one really spoke about the jobs. Um, and that became part of the culture that Yelda and I worked on, on uh, propagating all over. Um, I went up to her after the, after the event. I was like, oh, this is cool. I get it. This is a network of women that if you're supporting each other and there was an, uh, a, you know, a known network in every city, then we would be significantly further ahead than where we are now, which is constantly trying to, to make up for the resources that we've lacked for so many centuries. And so from there, she and I um, took Camel Assembly to Hong Kong, which is where I was based. And, um, and then she and I realized that 
you know, we were in friend love and we wanted to build things together. And from there we started running them all over and, and um, we found that every city that we landed in, there was such an appetite for a healthy female community that supported each other, but also made tangible change. And so the focus of Camel Assembly is to connect women around the world based on who you are and not what you do. Um, and from that, we find that women want to care for themselves and for their community and so social justice follows. And that I think is, is very much a blueprint for how many women would like to interact with each other. And we found time and time again, I had such a stark memory of being in Nairobi and as somebody who's been in the pursuit of human behavior for a long time, I remember sitting there and listening to, we run these circles where everyone around the circle speaks once and share something from their life. And three months prior, we had just launched Camel Assembly London. And I remember sitting in this, in this circle in Nairobi and hearing a woman say verbatim one of the challenges that a woman in London had faced three months before, not knowing each other, literally said the same sentence. And I was like, we are so the same. We are so much more the same than we are different, but it's so much easier to categorize and so much easier to capitalize on differences. And, and so, yeah, and so that's sort of where... That, that was where we, we found that, you know, there was, there was a need, there was a, a gap um, and that, that work continues and, and very much Yelda's mission is to see people marching daily and that's now what she uh, infuses through the organization and I'm totally about that and support that. That's amazing. Sorry, you really got me when you said, and we realized we were in friend love. I was like, oh, I've never heard that expression, but I need that expression in my life because I have that with a lot of people, Bianca. Isn't it? I think we also, our society, yes, I feel that. I feel like our society holds up romantic love so much because it's highly commodified. You know, it's so easy to sell Valentine's days and weddings and, and it's just so, it's so, um, it's not enough, you know, it doesn't describe how rich and robust, particularly I would say I've seen a lot of men be in friend love and I've seen women be in friend love and I've seen, all kinds of, of people connect um, on in a way that is almost more sustainable than than you know relying on one person, which I don't think we were ever supposed to. Do. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Men <laughs> have brom- bromances. Totally, it's really upsetting. There's no term for like as far as we have like women, which is again why like why. <laughs> Instead, it's <laughs> instead it's just like women fighting against each other, and we yeah. instead we have cat fights. You know, it's like all of this yeah. language that we use is so inept and, and like just doesn't do the job that it's supposed to do, which is describe human experience. So, yeah, I'm I'm all about falling in front of love with people. Okay, oh, I love that. Yeah, language is so important. Language yeah, is so important. Got, um, offline recently, um, especially on mm. the subject. Um, language and ownership of language um, we find that when we talk about certain things there's a bit of a globalized ideal of maybe if we're talking specifically about black lives matter about being black but Mm. each country and each space has their own culture and it can't always be globalized and sometimes it's quite upsetting to see that um you know, the things that all countries kind of understand maybe come from American culture, but, you know, as Black Brits, we have a clear different culture to other places. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. like ownership of your language, I think it's really important. 
Yeah, I, I think that's so important. And I think, you know, I would love to learn from you guys about how, and hopefully we get to that throughout this conversation about how that is affecting the UK. Because my, as somebody who has never, who has been part of so many, I would, I call myself British, I call myself Australian, I call myself from Hong Kong, I call myself an Indian, I call myself a New Yorker. Like, I mean, not yet. You're not allowed to do that until you've been here for 10 years. But I do say, you know, that is so much of what has informed my worldview. And I think that the, the way that we have to go now is having globalized conversations with localized action and then letting that localized action add to the globalized conversation. Yeah. And I think that's what we have to recognize that there's more nuance to communication now. And in, in the US particularly, like I, I learned so much as somebody who is, I deem myself a communicator and I being here helps me learn the skills of communication because there is no better storyteller than the US. Like we can test that comment, but <laughs> the pervasiveness of that culture around the world proves how good of a storyteller it is. Yeah. And yeah. so how do we now ensure that, that doesn't mar other voices and other viewpoints, mm-hmm. but allows us to take inspiration, apply that locally, and then take what we've learned locally and apply it back up to the global conversation. And I've just written that down as well. Global, conversa- <laughs> global conversation with localized action. Please expect to see that on social media as a quote. <laughs> I love it. Tag me, we're good. <laughs> so let's talk about, if we're going to, yeah, we've linked into race now. Let's talk about race um, in general. So we've got a term here written on our notes, um, environmental racism. Mm. You talk about a lot. So can you just talk us through, you know, what that means to you? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, there's a, there's a Marvin Gaye, uh, lyric from his 1971 song, Mercy, Mercy, Me. Um, and the line is, poison is the wind that blows from the north and the south and the east. And I think it's so important we hold that as a, as a visual because the thing with environmental racism is it sounds very scientific and it sounds very technical. Um, and the problem with when things are technical and, um, esoteric is that it excludes the people from the conversation who it usually affects. So when we're thinking about poison blowing from the North and the South and the East, I feel like Marvin Gaye so eloquently captures what environmental racism is. And it is that mostly people of color, black and brown people suffer most from the policies and practices that are made by white decision makers that usually mean that they are the ones who are, um, the recipients of being in uh, areas of high pollution, near hazardous waste zones, near places that have exposure to radiation. So all of the very um, technically damaging things to human health come about because the people who make the decisions don't make them with the people who are going to be affected in mind. And the way that I like to talk about environmental racism is to tie it to climate justice. So environmental racism is the problem. Climate justice is the solution. So how do we not just stay talking about environmental racism? Because we all know that, right? We all heard about Flint and the lead poisoning that happened um, in their water systems that still is pervasive to this day. We know that uh, there are dumping grounds for electronics in major parts of Asia, particularly in in, uh, Malaysia. We know these things. We know that clothes from the UK and from the US get taken to Nairobi and dumped there and people buy what they want and can and then that goes to their landfill. So these are all things that we have in our heads, I think, conceptually and that we understand. Um, But 
what we need to now move into, and I think this is why there's been inaction in this space, is that we haven't realized that, okay, well, what are we gonna do about it? Like, what is the climate justice action that we take from these steps? Who do we need to lobby? Who are the people that are most responsible for this? Like, for example, in, in New York, just outside of New York City, the indigenous people that uh, own this land first, who's, who are the, the landowners, are called the Ramapo people. And the Ramapo people, uh, have land still that they own just outside of New York City that's like reserved and there was Ford created a factory and the factory shut down in the 2000s and when they shut it down they dumped huge amounts of toxic paint into the water systems and then over the last 10-15 years the the members of the Ramapo community have had rashes on one end to uh, have had mental issues, mental defects because of the, the water that they're consuming. And so that is an example. Okay, so that's an environmental racism issue. The climate justice element is now we have to go to Ford and demand justice for that and rec and hold them accountable. One of my friends is a lawyer and he's been in a, in a legal pursuit and a negotiation with them for the last few years. So for, for me, it's really important that we tie environmental racism and cl climate justice together so that we know that this isn't just something that we're, we're talking about to identify. It's something that we're committed to trying to solve. Oh my God, this is insane. Sorry, this is just so much in my brain. Mm -hmm. right now. You know what's really interesting about this is the idea of ownership and accountability. So mm -hmm. the, middle, the middle point between the environmental racism and the social justice is the fact that I imagine a lot of people don't want to take ownership for that because it's not their responsibility. Yeah. So it's yeah. then relying on people to actively want to make change, not because it's their job to do so, not because it's their fault, but because it's the right thing to do. And I think that's the little middle ground where the difficulty will, will always lie. Um, yes. As people, we're inherently selfish, regardless of our race. Um, it's just naturally how we are. So I imagine any kind of social justice is difficult to get sorted yeah. because people don't want to do anything. And that's I think where, where empathy is so important, you know? And I think, you know, if you, if you study what happened in the civil, the civil rights movement, so much of the, the messaging that uh, MLK Jr. used was around empathy, you know? And I think there's there's an irony in that because it's, it's not the black it's not black people who need to be more empathetic but the the idea that there are people who are who are suffering who um ourselves included you know and and not in a pitying yeah. way and not in a sympathetic way but in an empathetic way and i think that a lot of people think they're being empathetic and they're being sympathetic so they're understanding the situation and they're like oh, that's so upsetting i'm so sorry that's happening to you move on you know that's sympathy empathy is I, I am willing to go through those emotions with you and understand what that must be like so that then I have an emotional attachment to that experience. And I think for a number of reasons, the, the nature of globalized communication, the amount of consumption that we're currently in, all of these different reasons, it doesn't ever go beyond like, oh, that's an issue. It's like, well, what about this bit? What about the feeling bit? And um, that's been my personal journey to go and understand and, and not to try and intellectualize everything, but to actually feel it. And then from that place of feeling, act. Yeah, I watched a video from, I think it's Dr. Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. And she 
incredible, only like about two minutes long on the difference between sympathy and empathy. And the messaging is just so powerful. And I, w I would encourage anybody to just Google it watch the video because that's dope really I haven't does. even I haven't seen that that's cool it's I'm brilliant so I think it's, I think it's on her website um or you can find it on YouTube but um yeah it's just two minutes and it's super powerful and it just shows you the true difference between sympathy and empathy and that feeling it's as you said it's bringing to the forefront that feeling uh, and of understanding somebody else's situation but then saying I'm going to go through that with you and how can I how can I support you in that mm, yeah Brené Brown is just a savant she just she is so necessary for this time I'm so glad that in this historical moment we've been given her to give us language for the things that we don't know that we need and I, I just I think we should all be constant uh, students of Brené yeah amen <laughs> I want to hmm? agreed um it's just yeah it's like it's as you were saying charlotte it's that accountability and it's that idea that if it's difficult people tend to brush something under the carpet because they don't want to accept it and they don't want to deal with difficult situations it's like we've been seeing on social media so much about holding people accountable and forcing people to have that difficult conversation yeah and i mean like it's it's very possible it's like even in the case of the uk with the tragic death of of shukri abdi um and how many people who for context i'm, I'm not sure of the listenership of your podcast but was a, a muslim woman a young girl who was brutally murdered um and there was no justice seen for her murder yeah. and because of the nature of how information is shared now um people wrote to the MP and was like, this is unacceptable. Justice must be served. And I think only this morning, well, my morning, your afternoon, I got an email from, from him um, saying that, you know, this is, this is how I'm going to be handling it because I've received over 13,000 emails from people around the world asking for justice. And it's like, okay, so that's what empathy looks like in action. You know, it's not just liking a photo. It is, okay, what's the action step? You, you're accountable for justice. Okay, we're going to bombard you. We're going to be like that that a bit macabre um reference but that black mirror uh episode where we're the bees and we're gonna come for you until you decide to be the justice server that you are meant to be and i i personally haven't seen i haven't seen a mobilization of people like this ever in my life in my in my time and if we can keep that momentum and continue to I think what's happening is we're identifying who the people are who are responsible. So we're being a little bit more thoughtful versus just like Yelda has this term called trend praying. Like you don't, you don't just like throw up a hashtag and say praying for you and change your display picture, but that we actually find out, well, who's responsible. Let me, all you have to do is send an email. Like it's, you know, like it's not asking the most of you. And then we may keep following up. And I think that that's, that within itself is a drastic change of mobilization of people. Definitely. I feel like in this current movement climate, the resurgence of the movement, let's say, of Black Lives Matter, I feel like we've all just realized how social media links with like social rights, global mobilization, whatever it would be, just basically how social media can actually make a change. It's really strange because we've had social media for a very long time and we've had 
people's deaths come up on social and you know cause some changes but I feel like this time around I'm not sure what has happened but we've now realized how to use our voices online effectively and this is something that I just want like to encourage everyone to keep doing because this whole yeah letter writing thing like I wouldn't but before now I didn't not now but before you know these last couple of weeks I didn't know that this was something that we could do and could effectively make a change with so mm. now anytime someone's like write a letter about this I'm like yeah and this yeah available it's I don't have to write the letter <laughs> person and if I can get these letters written then like Joe blogs can also get them written so absolutely god you're so right that's so true I do feel like we've like stumble out of a cave with an iPhone and are like, oh, I can do something with this. I don't have to just beat myself over the head with consumption, you know? And like, that makes me like so much social media so much more as well in terms of like mental health and, and how negatively social media has affected our mental health. Well, that's a way to really powerfully change its use. And so how do we continue to, to propagate that message, you know, because you're totally right. All of a sudden it's like, oh, I can use this as a bridge to a social justice outcome. Like, let me do that thing because I, you know, the classic biblical example of Moses with the staff. It's like, well, this is our equivalent, right? This is our staff in 2020. This is what I got. So I'm going to try and use it. It's just so interesting. I gained a lot of followers over the last couple of weeks and I'm just obsessed now, actually obsessed with posting people I know and love or like people I know are like sick at what they do, posting them on my new massive, well for me, massive Instagram following and then looking at how many people click onto their page. That is for me a good time. This is how I spend my fun times. Um, And unless I'm doing some kind of paid ads, that's pretty much the only reason why I'm on social at the moment. Like yesterday I posted about a friend of mine who's an incredible award-winning recruiter for um sorry my dog's going a bit mad recruiter for um specifically for minority ethnic communities and i've put her forward for loads of jobs before with with other big brands and she's just so great and i met her at an award ceremony when she was winning an award um and i just spent like half an hour of my life yesterday just posting stuff about her in a really weird way <laughs> Charlotte that says so much about your abundance of friend love. how much you friend are just like, yeah exactly <laughs> I'm a big friend lover but and I was just like oh I hope people like what listen to the podcast and watch the video and I'm a big fan of trackable links unfortunately I didn't make a trackable link for that but I would have loved to <laughs> love, I love them I didn't use it that time but I still love them things <laughs> <laughs> But um, time was not of the essence at that point. But anyway, so yeah, I'm just really interested in seeing like what we can, who we can get under other people's noses. But if we had been doing this forever, like that's what social media should really be for. That this is where my comments coming from. This is a really long-winded way of saying it. But like that's where social media sh- should be used. And it's really funny to think how many people have had this platform that they're able to do so much with, and then it's just been wasted. It's just not been used in the 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 effective way to create change and it's actually quite easy to do this stuff now I've, I did I really like, these couple of weeks have made me realize how much change we can make just by using our phones yeah. oh my god and our voices I've seen, I've seen some people really really use their platforms and their audience 
they've they've influenced their audience in a way that is just so positive but then there's the backlash side of it where your your audience sometimes want you to speak out on everything and you can't but some people are using are using it in a way where they they're trying to they'll educate themselves about something if they have a, if they don't have an idea like i saw somebody post something today about yemen and they said i don't know enough about this to give an opinion but let me go away and find out what's going on and then i'll come back to you and i thought yes good for you i love that. and i think like we need people to do both of the things and i think you know this is a very it's quite a tender time isn't it because people mm. all of a sudden are like oh okay i guess i should speak about meaningful for all of a sudden i really like being on instagram because it's all meaningful things you know like <laughs> yeah. for so long i was like i just don't care about your haul and your <laughs> whatever you know like I I really enjoy being on that platform now but I think what we have to be careful of and give people the sort of infrastructure of is how do you talk about things that are meaningful and important not position yourself as the expert if you're not the expert but still feel bold enough to call out injustice and I think that's like that we're just needing to be slightly more complex humans where you know you don't just decide that you are the voice on everything and can lead up because that's literally the issue. <laughs> that's literally the thing we're yeah. trying to undo right now is that people who are making decisions and speaking about things are not the ones who should be. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. also how do we not take away the voice of the people and how do we make sure that people still do feel like, okay, I don't necessarily know much about this, but I do feel like it's an important issue and I'm going to take you on my journey of learning. And that I think is to reference Brené Brown, what vulnerable leadership looks like, especially, you know, for mm. both of you who have significant uh, platforms that is, is so powerful because all of a sudden people have a, a template to be able to uh, e- extend their own learning and process their own learning through. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Ah, yay to social media, 2020. First time, first time we could ever say that. <laughs> that's come out of 2020 people being able to do properly totally <laughs> but it is also it just shows you um, it's taken for everyone to be isolated and to not be able to go around and do their normal daily activities for them to really take notice yes, uh, I feel yes. like that's really poignant but um, yeah. t- I'm just saying hooray to social media and kind of yay coronavirus in some sort yeah. of yeah about no, for, sure. <laughs> for sure for sure like honestly like and again, plurality, right? Does mm. not do away with the tragedy of this yeah. situation and how many lives we've lost. Also aware of that there, there is always a, a yin to a yang. Mm-hmm. And if this is a time where all of a sudden other things are switching and from pollution to the way people use social media, you know, it's like the, the way this was lined up, it's like whatever God, cosmic force, things that are beyond our control had lining this up, it's like, yeah, good. We were already inside, so we could already go inside deeper, you know, as yeah. we begin to consider racism and our, our complicity within it. Um, and so, yeah, I hear you and I agree with you. Coronavirus has a place in, in history. Yeah, for more than one reason, yeah. Um, B, do you want to move on to question five? Because we both here. Yeah, sure. Go for it. You want me to say it? Oh, yeah, sure, go for it. You go, you go. Ooh. Um, so black and brown environmentalists are often removed from the conversation with regards to environmentalism. So what would you be your opinion on how we can encourage open discussions on climate justice 
and ensuring that their voices are actually heard? Mm. I have salient memories of being in rooms where there are a lot of decision makers, right? I remember, you know, whether it's sort of the World Economic Forum crew or the Davos crew or United Nations, you know, that, that ilk of people. And constantly hearing things like, we need to ensure more creativity. We need to ensure there are more uh, minorities present. We need to ensure more youth voices. And looking around the room and being so confused and being like, okay, literally 90, 95% of people here are white and 75% of them are men. And nearly everybody is over the age of 45. Like, mm. What do you what do you actually mean? Because you evidently don't mean that. Otherwise, the room would look different, right? And I think we got to start by. I don't know if you two have this experience as well. I'm sure you have many times. You've walked into a room. You're like, okay, cool. I'm the only brown person here. I'm the only yeah. woman here. Here we go. You know, like yeah. I'm gonna have to do ten minutes of a dance to make the sort of show that I deserve to be in the room and bring up all the statistics and the facts and speak in the right way so that you trust me and then I can come and hit you with a bit more truth and, uh, and ask you maybe difficult questions, but that should not be a ritual that we need to go through all the time. And I, and I think consistently I'm now starting to ask like, well, who else is on that panel? What is the room going to be like? And unless there people are actively going and seeking voices from black and brown communities that are affected by the things that we're talking about, it is literally pomp and fanfare. There is, there is nothing, if those people are not part of the conversation, we are here for our own egos. And that is just a truth that people aren't willing to sit with a lot of the time because we've been allowed to stay in rhetoric. And Greta Thunberg speaks about this so well because of how powerfully, you know, how par- powerfully unable she is to speak anything but truth. She constantly is like, this is this isn't the definition of insanity that you're saying that you want this thing you have the solutions for it and yet nothing happens <laughs> like what like what are you and I think that's um, again this sort of revolution that we're in it, it, it's a race conversation and it applies to yes and additionally it applies to many other social realms of hey the things that you're saying you've been saying for a long time and we're not falling for them anymore unless you do something we are going to revolt and that's like, I, you know, I love that. I love that about our generation. And I, I've always said that millennials and the generation to come will, will be the ones to save the world because we are, we are not under the delusion that words are enough, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so very roundabout way of, of saying black and brown representation requires active recruitment. So your friend who is, is an award-winning recruiter, like, they are never they've never been more important than right now yeah. going and for me representation has always i i don't ever expect to see anyone who sounds or looks like me anywhere um and if i had i might have been a different person you know it's very difficult to become that which you have not seen and so how do we now ensure that those people who are directly affected by it are the ones who are having the conversations and who are making the decisions. Like if you are a, a white person, you should be, not be talking about Black Lives Matters issues. Like that's just like on a very simple level, that's where it kind of comes to. And that's true of environmentalism. If you are not somebody who has experienced what it is like to be on food stamps, why are you making decisions for people who are on food stamps? Mm-hmm. And those, those, um, 
those practices that have have perpetuated for so long because we relied on only intellect and ex and perceived experience of people is I don't think it's going to fly anymore. And I think as long as we're continuing to go to the voices who are directly affected by these decisions, um, we will we will not see change. It's, yeah, I feel a little bit like stumped after today's conversation <laughs> because everything that you're saying is exactly what we need to be doing and we do need to be affecting change and it's as you said this is the definition of insanity here's the solution why are we not doing it it's we do need to continue pushing our decision makers and pushing those who are in power to make not just a decision but the correct decision and then enforce the correct action so yeah and i, and I think there's a there's a there's a very tangible way to do it you know and i think that I know a lot of people right now are like, oh my God, this is the conversation that, you know, I feel like we've been in this conversation for a long time. So this is this, this new way of communicating doesn't feel overwhelming because it's like, oh, cool. Welcome to the party. Yeah. <laughs> like we've been, we've been out here trying to get people to, to see the world as it is versus how they want to. Um, but I think, you know, there are very tangible action steps that we can take. Firstly, like change your life algorithms. I always say that to people is like, what are you consuming? Because echo chambers are, are, the, the greatest threat to us all in terms of information and what we understand of the world. So change your life algorithms. Who is around you? Who, if yeah. everyone looks and sounds like you, that's a problem. Change that. And then secondly, if we can train ourselves to look at an injustice and then immediately for me, I'm like, well, what's the action step? So I'll learn about the injustice and it's like, what's the action step? Not constantly because I don't think that humans have the capacity to actually handle every issue yeah. that is in the world. But like as you're, you know, as you're learning, it's like the reason that George Floyd has had the impact it has is because people are like learning about it. Okay, well, what's the action step? And so if we can train ourselves to do, to be those people, the rest will come. And I think that's, I think that's also a very manageable way for us to not sort of be stuck in a, in a state of paralysis, which is definitely where I come to a lot as I am overwhelmed by how much needs to be done. It's like, okay, how do I ensure that I'm changing my life algorithm and have a diverse set of people around me. And then how do I make sure that I'm constantly looking for the action step so that justice is up? I love that. Yeah. I think we should all be doing the exact same thing. Learning from each other. Yeah. Just encouraging one another. And it's, as you said, if you've got all the, the same people around you and you've never experienced anything else in terms of culture or diversity in terms of people, then you're always going to think that what you're doing is acceptable. Absolutely. And I, think, and I think we're quite lucky, especially living in London, we're exposed to so many different cultures. I mean, you can turn a street corner and you're in like, <laughs> like a completely different neighbourhood. or like it's, it's just so incredible here. It is a melting pot. So you are exposed to a lot more, but then at the same time, you're exposed to it, but do you understand it? So taking it. Are you taking taking it in? Because I have had yeah. three times today. I <laughs> live in London. I live. If I walk out the front door, as you said, I'm exposed to so many different cultures, and so are my friends. But I know that a lot of my friends, I'm the only black person that they've ever had a conversation in their orbit that we've had or had a friendship with, and it's just. Like, sorry to drag all you white friends of mine, but it's, it's actually mind-blowing to think that no matter where you are in the world, that still happens. That is a social norm. 
But we stand mm. in New York, like these cosmopolitan cities where you actually can't escape quote unquote diversity. Mm-hmm. It's not being taken in. So there's just so many, so yeah. many no totally but it's like also that because of literally because of the color of our skin we've trained ourselves to we've had to train ourselves to approach social situations in a certain way right and that is that is where white privilege comes in because the dominant societal norm is in your favor and so you've never had to do that and so it's not even condemning people for that it's like cool i get it like the thing i say all the time is the safest place to hide water is with a fish it's very difficult to see the environment that you're swimming in. I get that. Now, as you learn that thing, the, your responsibility comes to unlearn yeah. and be like, okay, I'm so used to moving around and expecting everyone to speak to me in a certain way and look like me and listen to the same things, eat the same things, and approach conflict in the same way. I now recognize that that's something I need to unlearn and that's an active behavior change that we have to commit to. And I think that's kind of the next stage of this sort of racial revolution of like oh right white supremacy not ideal how do we bring that down well what is that what does that actually look like it looks like behavior change and it looks like us personally committing to that behavior change yeah yeah it's amazing as we're speaking i'm sitting here kind of doing like a little bit of internal like introspective like thinking thinking about the way i've been raised and like questions that I've asked and different things that have been asked of me and just expectations and the way that I am, even within my workplace. And it's, yeah, it's just, it just, it's just good food for thought, isn't it? It makes you. Oh, it's just also an unraveling. It's very painful. <laughs> I don't know, like from my personal experience and being like, oh, I am incredibly whitewashed. I had that experience of recognizing, like, I literally, I have completely made myself white because that was the environments that I was in and then I started to recognize that and I think the first time I even called myself a person of color was in 2017 and so it was for me that was the level of lack of identifying my own self in this journey and um it's painful because Mm. it, it it requires us to revisit topics that I know as a mixed person who has been perpetually an immigrant like brings up deep issues of belonging and identification and my place in the world and how I relate to other people and being accepted and those things. And so that's why we, we personally, like I can't speak on behalf of other people from other ethnicities, but for, for me as a mixed person, that's why I avoided it. Cause I was like, oh, I don't want to, I'm already struggling to try and like, that's why I've created all these coping mechanisms, you know? Yeah. Um, but the, the fulfillment and depth, I think that, that you, are entitled to as a human like that is what it is to be human is to to know who you are and to be fully in your in your identity um doesn't happen unless you do that work and so i think it's painful but it's so necessary and and i think that's the reckoning that we're currently undergoing uh we will end on that that note mm-hmm. necessary um we ask all of our guests to set us a challenge for the week whether it's to do with how like if we want to be more sustainable like ethical products or whatever you want us to do what what i always get nervous i'm like what challenge have you got for us this week <laughs> i would actually um you know to to 
point to what we've already spoken on, I would say change your life algorithm this week. Like where, cause there, no one is exempt from the echo chamber. It's like all of us, doesn't matter who you are and, and what environment you're in. We bias is, is prevalent. Um, and so this week I would, I would, you know, I'm personally doing that even in my everyday now trying to stay constantly vigilant to the echo chambers that I am in. And so the action step of that is like, okay, who has an, who has a completely different viewpoint to what I have? Mm -hmm. Like I follow a lot of white supremacists and I follow a lot of like very religious people. And I follow like people who have quite, who I would say are quite, and with no judgment on a contrary, um, spectrum to me so that I can understand. And it's, (laughs) there's a lot of emotions that come with doing that, but I do that on purpose because I want to make sure that I stay, well, what is, what is mainstream media saying? Mm -hmm. What, because that's the that's where we've come undone particularly in in elections particularly in 2016 for for the uk and the us um we only listened to echo chambers and then all of a sudden we were like shocked and there was horror around the outcomes you know and that's because our our algorithms were telling us what we wanted to hear and so change your change your life algorithm and i'm so curious as to as to what people find when they do that yeah that's a nice one something different isn't it (laughs) I do know people that do this, that follow different, like, yeah, the contrasting news outlets to find the middle ground on the news. Mm. If you're on Facebook, for example, they follow, like, CNN and BBC and then, like, The Guardian and Fox News. And they'll, so that everything that comes at them, like, they basically yeah. have them so that it's kind of a neutral ground. So, yeah, yeah it's, an, it's an articulation, I think, as well, for, so that we can speak about so that we're able to come from where somebody else is coming from. Because I have no interest to change the opinion of people whose opinions has changed. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's what we do. We preach to ourselves a lot and we feel good and give ourselves a tap on the back. Being like, well, what are you actually saying? That's a really, okay, let me take apart why police brutality is an issue and not just a couple of bad apples, right? Like, let me actually articulate that for you so that I understand myself and I can check my thing. I also am able to walk somebody through that so that I actually understand and being able to give that defense, I think is really important. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was such a great conversation. You are both so wonderful, Charlotte. Thank you. If you, if people want to find you on social media, where can they find you? My full name, Keshia, K-E-S-H-I-A, Hanam, H-A-N-N-A-M, is my handle everywhere, Keshia. 